Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 12, the book of Acts, chapters 4 and 5. I need you to keep your Bibles handy. We're going to be doing a lot of reading today in both Testaments. Now, depending on who does the counting, the New Testament consists of somewhere between 45% and 55% Old Testament quotes. In other words, the Bible characters of the New Testament regularly use Old Testament quotes to prove their their case or to make a point. So if we were to carefully go through our New Testaments and cross out all the Old Testament verses uh, that are brought there, our New Testaments probably shrink to about half the size they are. Now, the complete Jewish Bible that that I read from, many of you read from, for a Torah class, uh, makes it pretty easy to spot the Old Testament passages because it uses bold type to highlight those Old Testament quotes in the New Testament. And a footnote will tell you uh, where in the Tanakh each particular quote appears. However, it's not exhaustive. It doesn't include it doesn't include it all. Thus, what we see in the book of Acts, chapter 4, is Peter quoting a number of Old Testament passages in his explanation of the gospel message and in condemning the Sadducean high priests for their role in the execution of Yeshua. One of the major themes in Acts chapter 4 is Peter connecting the well-known Psalm 118 passage about the stone that is rejected by the builders becoming the cornerstone with the salvation that's offered in Christ. This Psalm was well known by most Jews and committed to memory by many because it was part of the Hallel that was used in the synagogue and as part of festival liturgy. Now, Peter says of Psalm 118 that Jesus is the stone that was rejected by the builders and that the builders are represented by these members of the Sanhedrin that he was standing before. This was more than a metaphor the same Sanhedrin members indeed had only a couple of months earlier decided that Yeshua should be killed and enlisted the help of the Romans and Pontius Pilate to do it for them. The Sanhedrin that was examining Peter and John could find no legitimate cause to punish them. So they released them with the warning that they were never again to do miracles, including healing, in the name of Yeshua. To which Peter said he wouldn't comply. And upon being reunited with the other believers in Jerusalem who were overjoyed that Peter and John came back to them unharmed, they prayed together a common prayer that was Psalm 2, verses 1 and 2. This psalm of David asks why the nations, meaning Gentiles in the main, raged and tried to thwart God's plans and there was no hope of them defeating the Lord. And the psalm goes on to depict 
the national leaders of the Gentiles conspiring to fight against Yehovah and his Messiah Yeshua. So, let's reread the last part of Acts chapter 4. We'll start at verse 25. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, this will be page 1365. 1365. going to start at verse 25 go on to the end by the Ruach HaKodesh Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David your servant you said why did the nations rage and the peoples devise useless plans the kings of the earth took their stand the rulers assembled together against Adonai and against his Messiah this has come true in this city since Herod and Pontius Pilate with Goyim, Gentiles and the people of Israel all assembled against your holy servant Yeshua whom you made Messiah to do what your power and plan had already determined beforehand should happen. So now Lord take note, take note of their threats enable your slaves to speak your message with boldness stretch out your hand to heal and to do signs and miracles through the name of your holy servant Yeshua. And while they were still praying, the place where they were gathered was shaken. They were all filled with Ruach HaKodesh and they spoke God's message with boldness. All the many believers were, were one in heart and soul. No one had claimed any of his possessions for himself, but everyone shared everything he had. With great power, the emissaries continued testifying to the resurrection of the Lord Yeshua and they were all held in high regard. No one among them was poor since those who owned lands or houses sold them and turned over the proceeds to the emissaries to distribute to each according to his need. Thus Yosef, whom the emissaries called Barnabah, which means the exhorter, a Levite and a native of Cyprus sold a field which belonged to him and he brought the money to the emissaries. So Peter sees Psalm 2 as a prophecy about Messiah and says that this has been fulfilled in the persons of Herod and Pontius Pilate along with both Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, meaning Jews in a, in a broad sense, but in reality those, it's mainly those who formed the Sanhedrin. Now this particular Herod that Peter mentioned is Herod Antipas. And he was not the king over Judea at this time. In fact, the history record seems to indicate there was no king over Judea and Jerusalem for perhaps at least a three to four year time span. Antipas ruled over the Roman controlled provinces of Galilee and uh, uh, Perea. Uh, as a, what, what they called a tetrarch or a tetrarch, a governor. Judea, remember now, was being ruled by Pontius Pilate. He was a procurator. This was a higher position than a tetrarch, meaning he had nearly uh, autonomous power, and he reported directly to Caesar. So by invoking Herod and Pilate, Peter was, was indicting he was indicting the political leadership of most of the Holy Lands as co-conspirators who joined together to oppose the will of God. But Peter, at the same time in verse 28, acknowledges 
that despite how it might seem to earthly eyes, all that had happened to Yeshua was pre-planned by His Father, Yehovah. And so essentially, Antipas and Pilate and those Jews and Gentiles that were complicit in the murder of Messiah were but unwitting tools in God's hands. Now please note something of vital importance here. It is that God foreknew that these people would do these wicked things, but that doesn't somehow now make them righteous people. It doesn't absolve them from their evil intents and deeds. You know, there's been a lot of heartburn and difference of opinion within the world's churches over just how to view Adolf Hitler. Because it was his horrific attempt to stamp out the Jewish race that brought us the Holocaust. Yet at the same time, the result of the Holocaust was a guilty Western world that, who felt that, that they had a little choice but to give these surviving Jews a homeland for their own. And of course, that homeland turned out to be their ancient ancestral home, Israel. And as we are all well aware, this rebirth of the nation of Israel fulfilled several Old Testament prophecies about the exiled Jews being returned to their homeland and then being eventually rejoined by their brothers, the legendary Ten Lost Tribes. And this prophecy of return is best expressed, I think, in Ezekiel 36 and 37. For instance, in Ezekiel 36:24, For I will take you from among the nations and gather you from all the, the countries and return you to your own soil. Ezekiel 37 uh, verses 21-22 just as some examples then say to them that Adonai Elohim says I will take the people of Israel from among the nations where they've gone and gather them from every side and bring them back to their own land I will make them one nation on the mountains of Israel one king will be king for all of them they will no longer be two nations and they will never again be divided into two kingdoms but as with the issue of Herod and Pilate, are we to give Hitler credit and merit because his satanic actions directly led to the Jews being given back their homeland, uh, fulfilling God's prophetic promises? Hardly. It's just that in some unfathomable way, God sees and controls history from horizon to horizon and is able to orchestrate the bad intentions of wicked people to bring about his plans for good. Well, as the group of joyful believers was being led in prayer by Peter, we're told that the place where they gathered was shaken as they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. First, was there an actual physical shaking like with an earthquake? We don't know. Could be. Or it just as easily could be an expression meaning that this group of believers was spiritually and physically overwhelmed by the power and the presence of the, the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit of God. I mentioned this in our last lesson, but it bears repeating. Being filled with the Holy Spirit in this context does not mean that these folks were receiving the baptism of the Holy Spirit for the first time. Nor does it mean that the Holy Spirit comes and goes. 
Nor does it mean that there are numerous baptisms of the Holy Spirit upon the same individual. Rather, this is a common way of speaking. And it means some kind of special inspiration of God delivered by the Spirit has overcome them. And as we find in the Bible, as with Moses and his 70 elders and at Pentecost, often, often, a special inspiration of God's Spirit manifests itself in human speech. It's very interesting. So not surprisingly we find that what accompanied this special inspiration was an ability to speak God's message of salvation with boldness. And in Greek, the word that we translate as boldness is parisia, and it means to be free, to have fearless confidence. And when we understand what has just happened to Peter and John with their arrest and the threats from the Sanhedrin to never speak of the name Yeshua again, well, we can certainly understand why these ordinary, everyday, believing Jews needed to be divinely filled with fearless confidence. Isn't it the lack, though, of free and fearless confidence that keeps many of us from presenting the gospel to people we meet? Isn't that really it? Even to family and friends? I mean, how often I've heard shy believers explain they just don't see it as their job to present the gospel because it's not how they're wired. Pastors and those trained in the Bible and people with a gift of evangelism, they're to do that. Well, I'm sorry to tell you, that's not at all what Jesus or any of the writers of the New Testament, without exception, said. They agreed unanimously that it is the responsibility of all believers to spread the gospel. On the other hand, I can assure you that spreading the gospel has more to do with your personal countenance, your behavior, your decision every day to live a life of holiness and righteousness than any kind of persuasive words of the good news that you could utter. Nonetheless, speech is important. And speaking the gospel goes hand in hand with living it out for everybody to see. We aren't given the option of substituting one for the other or choosing to do only one or the other. Well, beginning in verse 32, till the end of the chapter, we're told how this this Spirit-filled community of, of Jewish believers manifested their faith in their daily living. And it began with adopting a lifestyle much like the Essens had been living for a few decades by now. That is, these believers worked together with a remarkable selflessness and togetherness and members even gave up rights to their own private property, sharing it with other members, selling it, using the proceeds for the good of the community. Unlike the essence, however, this sharing of private property was neither required nor forced. It was voluntary. 
A believer was not compelled to sell or share his assets in order to become and remain a member of the believing community in good standing. You know, it's interesting to me that the kibbutzim of Israel generally live in this way to this day, and strictly, more, more strictly so a few decades ago. That is, no one in a kibbutz owns property. And they don't hold assets privately. It all belongs to the kibbutz community. But then each member is provided housing and food and clothing and education, pretty much all their needs. They work together for the common good. This isn't communism, whereby the national government owns everything and simply directs what everybody must do. Rather, those who join a kibbutz have this understanding of sharing for the common good from the beginning and each kibbutz is fully independent. So for those who've been to Israel and have seen kibbutzim and know their lifestyle, what we are reading here in Acts chapter 4 is a close parallel. So it gives you a pretty good idea of how to visualize what's going on here in Acts chapter 4. So this chapter ends with an example of the type of the community spirit that the believers in Jerusalem had. Yosef, who was a diaspora Jew from the Mediterranean island nation of Cyprus, he sold a field and he gave the proceeds to the disciples to then disperse as they saw fit. Now interestingly, he was not technically a Jew, he was a Levite and had been given the nickname Bar-Nabah that means the exhorter. Now I mentioned it another another time that the priesthood was at this time not operating at all according to the Torah regulations but instead it went by man-made traditions. Levites like Yosef by Torah regulation weren't supposed to own land. Levites had been given cities to live in fields to be owned communally just outside those city walls. So it is apparent that other than for some of the ritual procedures, the Levitical laws concerning Levites and priests had become pretty well abandoned by by Christ's era. Let's move on to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5. That will be page 1366 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. We'll read it all. Acts chapter 5. But there was a man named Hananiah who with his wife Shaphrah sold some property. And with his wife's knowledge he was held some of the proceeds for himself although he did bring the rest to the emissaries. And then Kepha, as Peter said, Why has the adversary so filled your heart that you lie to the Ruach HaKodesh and keep back some of the money you receive for the land? Before you sold it, the property was yours. After you sold it, the money was yours to use as you please. So what made you decide to do such a thing? You have lied, not to human beings, but to God. And on hearing these words, Hananiah fell down dead. And everyone who heard about it was terrified. And the young man got up and wrapped up his body in a shroud and carried him out and buried him. Well, some three hours later, his wife came in unaware of what had happened. What had happened. And Kepha challenged her. Tell me, is it true you sold the land for such and such a price? Yes, she answered. That is what we paid. We're paid for it. 
But Kepha came back at her and said, Then why did you people plot to test the spirit of the war? Listen, listen. The men who buried your husband are at the door. They're going to carry you out too. Instantly she collapsed at his feet and died. The young men entered, found her dead, carried her out, buried her beside her husband. And as a result of this, great fear came over the whole Messianic community, indeed over everyone who heard about it. Meanwhile, through the emissaries, many signs and miracles continued to be done among the people. United in mind and purpose, the believers met in Shlomo, Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared to join them. Nevertheless, the people continued to regard them highly, and throngs of believers were added to the Lord, both men and women. They went so far as to bring the sick into the streets and lay them on the mattresses and stretchers so that at least Kepha's shadow might follow them as he passed by. Crowds also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and every one of them was healed. But the Kohen Hagadol, the high priest, and his associates, who were members of the party of the Zedukim, the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. And they arrested the emissaries and put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of Adonai opened the doors of the prison, led them out, and said, Go, stand in the temple court, and keep telling the people all about this new life. And after hearing that, they entered the temple area about dawn and began to teach. Now the high priest and his associates came and called a meeting of the Sanhedrin, that is, of Israel's whole assembly of elders, and sent to the jail to have them brought. But the officers who went didn't find them in the prison. So they returned and reported. We found the jail securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened it, we found no one inside. And when the captain of the temple police and the head uh, Kohanim, head priest, heard these things, they were puzzled and they wondered what would happen next. Then someone came and reported to them, Listen, the men you ordered put in prison, they're standing in the temple court teaching the people. The captain and his officers went and brought them, but not with force, because they were afraid of being stoned by the people. They conducted them to the Sanhedrin where the Kohen Hagadol demanded of them, We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name. Look here, you filled Jerusalem with your teaching. Moreover, you are determined to make us responsible for this man's death. And Kepha and the other emissaries answered, We must obey God, not men. The God of our fathers raised up Yeshua, whereas you men killed him by having him hanged on a stake. God has exalted this man at his right hand as ruler and savior in order to enable Israel to do teshuva, to have her sins forgiven. We are witness to these things. So is the Ruach HaKodesh, whom God has given to those who obey Him. And on hearing this, the members of the Sanhedrin were infuriated. They wanted to put the emissaries to death. But one of the members of the Sanhedrin rose to his feet, a Porush, a Pharisee, named Gamliel, a teacher of the Torah, highly respected by all the people. And he ordered the men put outside for a little while and then addressed the court. Men of Israel... Take care what you do to these people. Some time ago, there was a rebellion under Todah who claimed to be somebody special and a number of men, maybe 400, rallied behind him. But upon his being put to death, his whole following was broken up, came to nothing. After this, Yehuda Hagali led an uprising back at the time of the enrollment of the Roman tax. And he, he got some people to defect to him, but he was killed. All his followers were scattered. 
So in the present case, my advice to you is don't interfere with these people, but to leave them alone. For if this idea or this movement has a human origin, it'll collapse. But if it's from God, you won't be able to stop them. You might even find yourselves fighting God. They heeded his advice. And after summoning the emissaries and flogging them, they commanded them not to speak in the name of Yeshua. And they let them go. And the emissaries left the Sanhedrin overjoyed at having been considered worthy of suffering disgrace on account of him. And not for a single day, either in the temple court or in private homes, did they stop teaching teaching and proclaiming the good news that Yeshua is Messiah. I think it would have been far better not to put a chapter change in between Acts 4 and 5 where it's been placed because I think it blunts the intended impact we ended chapter 4 with a brief story about Yosef who sold a field gave the money to the disciples for the good of the believing community now to start chapter 5 we get a similar story now remember it just follows immediately with what just ended chapter 4 We get in chapter 5 this similar story, although it's essentially designed to draw a contrast and a distinction between these two situations that both involved selling personal property and giving the proceeds to the disciples. A man named uh, Ananias, which was a pretty common name in this area, and his wife, Shafra, more or less tried to imitate what Yosef had done but the less than honorable intent of their hearts was exposed and it resulted in their immediate deaths. Now we're going to examine this story in depth for a number of reasons. But one of the main reasons is this is a story that has created a lot of anxiety and embarrassment within Christianity because the consequence of death seems so harsh in comparison to the crime That is, it is a Roman Christian tradition that the harsh, merciless justice of the Old Testament and the law has supposedly given way to the loving and forgiving justice of the New Testament and of grace. Or to put a finer point on it, the God of the Old Testament, the Father, has been set aside for the God of the New Testament, Christ. And while the Father might be might, might be quick to punish and chastise. Christ would only lovingly forgive us and so believers bear no consequence for our sins. This is a classic case whereby a false man-made doctrine is established but God's word shows us something quite different. Quite different. The result? A concerted effort to defend that man-made doctrine and it leads to a lot of confusion for Bible students. Because God is a God of patterns, we find a corollary to the story of Ananias and Chafra in the Old Testament. And it concerns a man named Achan. And we find it in Joshua chapter 7. Let's read that together. Joshua chapter 7. 
If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's on page 247. You're going to read it all. But the people of Israel misappropriated some of the goods set aside to be destroyed. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zavdi, the son of Zerach, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the things reserved for destruction. In consequence, the anger of Adonai blazed up against the people of Israel. Yeshua, Joshua, sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is next to Beit Avon, east of Bethel, telling them to go up and spy out the land. So the men went up and reconnoitered I, returning to Joshua, and they told him, Don't have all the people go up, but perhaps two or three thousand men go up and attack I. There's no point in making all the people exert themselves out to get there, because there's only a few of them. So from the people, about three thousand men went up there, but they were routed by the men of I. The men of Ai killed some 36 of them and chased them from their gate, all, before their gate, all the way to Shavrim, attacking them on the, de- on the descent. The hearts of the people melted and turned to water. Joshua tore his clothes. He fell to his face on the ground before the ark of Adonai until evening. And he and the leaders of Israel, and they, they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Oh, Adonai Elohim, why did you take the trouble to bring this people across the Jordan if you meant to hand us over to the Amorites and have us perish? We should have been satisfied to live on the other side of the Jordan. Oh, Adonai, what can I say? After Israel has turned their backs and retreated before their enemies. For when the Canaanites and the other people living in the land hear about it, they're going to surround us and wipe us off the face of the earth. What will you do then to save the honor of your great name? Adonai said to Yahshua, Stand up. Why are you lying there face down? Israel has sinned. Yes, they violated my covenant, which I commanded them. They've taken some of which was uh, of, uh, some of what was to have been set aside for destruction. They have stolen it, lied about it, put it with their own things. This is why the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs on their enemies because they've come come under a curse. I won't be with you anymore until you destroy the things meant for destruction that you have with you. So get up. Consecrate the people and say, Consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow. For here is what Adonai, the God of Israel, says, Israel, you have things under the curse of destruction among you. You will not be able to stand before your enemies until you remove the things that were to have been destroyed from among you. Therefore, tomorrow morning you are to come forward, one tribe at a time. The tribe Adonai takes is to come forward, one family at a time. The family Adonai takes is to come forward, one household at a time. The household Adonai takes is to come forward one person at a time. The person who was caught with things in his possession that were reserved for destruction is to be burned to ashes. He, everything he has, because he has violated the covenant of Adonai and has committed a shameful, shameful deed in Israel. So Yeshua got up early in the morning, had Israel come forward one tribe at a time, and the tribe of Yehuda was, take, was taken. He had the families of Yehuda come forward and took the family of Zarhi. He had the family of Zarhi come forward by household leaders and Zavdi was taken. He had his household come forward one person at a time and Akan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zavdi, the son of Zerach of the tribe of Judah was taken. And Joshua said to Akan, My son, 
Swear to Adonai, the God of Israel, that you will tell the truth and confess to him. Now tell me now, what did you do? Don't hide anything from me. And Achan answered Joshua, it's true. I've sinned against Adonai, the God of Israel. Here is exactly what I did. When I saw there was uh, there with the spoil a beautiful robe of, from uh, Shinar and five pounds of silver shekels and one and a half quarter pound wedge of gold, I really wanted them. So I took them. You'll find them hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. Joshua sent messengers who ran to the tent. It was all there, hidden in his tent, including the silver underneath. And they took the things from inside the tent and brought them to Joshua and all the people of Israel and put them down before Adonai. Joshua, together with all Israel, took Achan, the son of Zerach, with the silver, the robe, the wedge, his sons, his daughters, his cattle, his donkeys, his sheep, his tent, everything he had, and brought them up to the Akor Valley. And Joshua said, Why have you brought, brought trouble on us? Today Adonai will bring trouble on you. All of Israel stoned him to death. They burned them to ashes and stoned them. Over him they piled a great mound of stones which is there to this day. Finally Adonai turned away from his fierce anger and this is why that place is called the Valley of Akor. Trouble to this day. So this fellow Achan took some of the spoils that belonged to God. See, this is a violation of the law of harem, also called the law of the ban. The idea is that in a holy war, all the spoils of war belong to God. And after a great victory at Jericho, when the spoils should have been piled up and burned, since burning them up was the only way to sanctify them and give them to God, a fellow named Achan misappropriated some of the spoils for himself. Now this act was not only personal sin, it had the effect of cursing all Israel. Thus, in their next attempted conquest, the city of Ai, the attack was a disaster. It was a failure. The enemy soldiers of Ai chased away the Israelites, killing several of them, and this Ai wasn't taken. Joshua and the Israelites were devastated because they felt God had promised them victory. So how can they understand and explain this humiliating defeat? God explained it to them. He said they had taken, someone had taken property which belonged to him and that this person had to be identified and properly judged. Akan turned out to be the culprit. He admitted his crime. And the result was that Akan and his entire family was stoned to death and the family's possession along with their lifeless bodies burned to ashes. So, in this we see that fire and burning can on the one hand sanctify, as we see in the law of Harem. On the other hand, it can be used to utterly destroy. The consequence of sin, or not obeying the law of Harem. There's yet another Old Testament principle and pattern that needs to be applied to our story of Ananias and Shafra to help us understand God's severe reaction towards them. It involves the biblical principle of vow offerings. And once again, many denominations don't like this because in the mainstream, Christianity doesn't believe that anything of the Old Testament and the law applies to New Testament believers. 
and Ananias and Sapphira were, by all church standards, New Testament believers. And yet what happened here is directly tied to the law of of making vows. And if we don't apply the law of harem and the law of vows to our story in Acts 5, then it's true. We can't make much sense of it. In Deuteronomy chapter 23... We learn this in 23, verses 22-24. When you make a vow to Adonai your God, you are not to delay in fulfilling it, for Adonai your God will certainly demand it of you. And your failure to do so will be your sin. And if you choose not to make a vow at all, that will not be a sin for you. But if a vow passes your lips, you must take care to perform it according to what you voluntarily vowed to Adonai your God, which you promised in words spoken out loud. So, to break the law of harem, the law of the ban, or to break the law of the vow offering and not give to God what was promised is classified as intentional sin, or better for our, I think for our English vocabulary, a high-handed sin. It's the worst of the worst kind of sin. And for this kind of sin, there is no atonement available. At least not through the law. I think it would be proper to define these sins as with Ananias and Shafira's sin as blasphemy of the Holy Spirit of God. Because in verse 4, the final words of Peter to Ananias are, you've lied not to human beings but to God. And in verse 9 to Shafira, Peter says, then why did you people plot to test the Spirit of the Lord? Listen to Christ's own words about this, this subject in Matthew chapter 12. Verses 31 and 32. Because of this I tell you that people will be forgiven any sin and blasphemy, but blaspheming the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, will not be forgiven. One can say something against the Son of Man and be forgiven, but whoever keeps on speaking against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. Neither in the, neither in the Olam Hazay, this world, or in the Olam Haba, the world to come. So here's what happened with Ananias and Shapira and why it happened. It followed the patterns that God had laid down. It followed the patterns that God had laid down. The first thing to recognize is that from the first moments of the inception of the body of followers of Christ, believers were not perfect. And they didn't become perfect. There is nothing here to indicate that Ananias and Shafira's actions were those of pretenders, but they were weak believers. Second, just as with Achan in the book of Joshua, Ananias and Shafira came back, uh, held back for themselves some of what now belonged to God. Why did the proceeds of the sale of their own property belong to God? Because they had made a show of selling their property and giving it all to the believer's community. They would made a vow. But instead of following through, they falsely reported the selling price and then gave that lesser amount to the disciples, keeping the rest of it for themselves. It was a deception that was designed to make them look good in front of everybody. The Deuteronomy 23 passage we read says that no one's required to make a vow. It's strictly up to the individual. But if you do, once that vow is made, 
God will hold us to it. Yeshua speaks about vow making in this way in Matthew 5, 33-37. Again, you have heard that our fathers were told, do not break your oath and keep your vows to Adonai. I tell you, don't swear at all. Not by heaven, because it's God's throne. Not by earth, because it's His footstool. Not by Jerusalem, because it's the city of the great king. And don't swear by your head, because you can't make a single hair white or black. Just let your yes be a simple yes, your no a simple no. Anything more than this has its origin in evil. Ananias and Shephira should have heeded their master, Yeshua. They had no need to vow to sell property and give it all to the believer's community. Peter says in verse 4, Acts 5, Before you sold it, the property was yours. After you sold it, the money was yours to use it as you please. Ananias and Shephira did nothing wrong in selling property and giving however much or little of it they preferred to the disciples. What they did would have been simple charity. What they did wrong was to turn voluntary charity into a sacred vow to give it to their fellow believers. The instant they did that, the proceeds of that sale belonged to God as His holy property. Ananias and Shephira transferred ownership to the Lord, whether they realized it or not. And then they took some of what was now the God's holy property for themselves. That's what happened. This is a lesson for us in modern times. Making a vow to God is a serious matter. It was then, it remains so today. I'm not saying that if you break your vow that God's going to surely kill you. But He did choose to kill Ananias and Shephira. And Jesus, knowing the hardness of our hearts, including the hearts of believers, strongly warned us to simply make our yes, yes, our no, no, without invoking a vow in the name of the Lord. Because then it changes the entire equation into something holy and therefore dangerous. So what did God intend to accomplish with these dramatic deaths of the the blasphemers, Ananias and Shephira, beyond divine justice? Verse 11 gives us the answer. As a result of this great fear came over the whole Messianic community and even over everyone who heard about it. You know, I think if we're honest, we see a little bit of Ananias and Shephira in ourselves. Who among us has made a promise in our heart to do something righteous or to not do something selfish or bad and either changed our minds or just forgotten all about it? Or even more, we've directed a prayer towards God that if He'd do thus and so for us, then we'd respond by doing thus and so for Him, and He did His part. 
but we didn't follow through with our part. Besides, no matter how we look at the God principles involved with their deaths, doesn't it seem in our natural sense, our just our natural selves, a sense of fairness that, that receiving the death penalty for not turning over 100% of the proceeds of the sale of their own property to the believing community was pretty extreme. See, I have a little doubt that the believers back then who witnessed and heard of this event truly understood. They understood the God principles about what happened to Ananias and Shafira. Yet as F.F. Bruce says in his commentary on the book of Acts, the fear which fell on the whole community suggests that many a member of it, like many an Israelite when Achan was exposed, had reason to tremble and think to themselves, there but for the grace of God go I. Amen to that. The Holy Scriptures are there to inform and to inspire and to warn. So for those who still haven't been convinced just yet that God's laws and commandments from the Hebrew Bible are every bit as relevant for us and that we are to obey them as are the instructions to us from Christ and His disciples in the New Testament, let the horrific deaths of Ananias and Shafira, followers of Christ, be a lesson. Fear God. Fear God. We'll continue with Acts chapter 5 next week.